This is The Connection, a Dirty Free Hub podcast connecting gravel cyclists to where they ride through short stories about culture, history, people, places, and lands. This podcast is supported in part by a grant from the Bend Cultural Tourism Fund. Hello, everyone. I'm Chris Kutosh, and on today's podcast, we're going to continue our discussion on the impact we as cyclists have on wildlife and our surroundings. Joining me today is Lori Turner and Brock McCormick, who are both wildlife biologists with Deschutes National Forest. Lauren Brock, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having us, Chris. Absolutely. What are some of the impacts that we as cyclists have on the forest when we do ride? The main issue that Lori and I want to kind of focus more on here for the podcast is the issue of disturbance and what some of the consequences of disturbance are for wildlife. Yeah, first off, people are pretty bad at gauging their disturbance potential for wildlife. So studies have shown that most recreationists feel that it's acceptable to approach wildlife at a much closer distance than wildlife will actually allow. A study out of Utah um, showed that an average of 59 meters was felt to be an acceptable distance by recreationists when approaching wildlife. When in fact, bison, mule deer, and pronghorn, their average flight distance was 150 meters or more. So that's almost triple the distance of what we think was acceptable versus what the wildlife does. You know, the the way that wildlife respond to that, that human disturbance, it can force animals to decide between risk avoidance or fitness enhancing activities for them, things like foraging and finding mates and caring for their young in Amy's podcast, she she described the wildlife response as as the three Fs, which I thought was great as freeze, flight, or fight. And all of these responses require energy expenditure from the animal. Wildlife often survive on a, a razor tight energy budget. And so what happens is wildlife are forced to make a decision, you know, does it cost more energetically or in terms of risk to hide or to flee or to ignore perceived threat. Some people may see an animal freeze and assume that it's uh, not being bothered because it's not running away. But animals have to be alert and are probably experiencing a stress response long before they initiate any sort of anti-predator response. Expending energy responding to human disturbance, it's especially impactful during vulnerable times of the year, like in the wintertime, um, when food resources could be scarce and they can't replenish those energy stores very easily, um, or when animals are pregnant or lactating or or caring for their young. Disturbance is also considered cumulative, right? Probably wasn't such a big issue in the past when Bend was a much smaller town, but that's all changed in a relatively short amount of time with population growth and changes in use patterns, changes in our recreation technology with e-bikes and fat bikes, also changes in the magnitude of use and the increasing demand of public lands. So recreation demands on public lands are at an all-time high right now. And the disturbance impact we're discussing is not just you riding your bike on any given day, but your bike ride times 500 other people riding on that same trail um, that same day. And these are numbers that we're actually seeing on our trails um, right now. 
just to put that in perspective, it's like on the longest day of the year, that equates to over 30 people per hour riding that trail. So a lot of people and disturbance is the major thing that we're causing. And we think that our proximity to the animal isn't so much, but for the animal, we are much closer for it than it feels comfortable. Yeah, that's right, Chris. Lori and I were, were kind of trying to figure out a, a different way to, to describe this in terms of like a human experience. And, you know, one way you can think about disturbance is, is try to picture it occurring in your own habitat. You know, picture your house or your apartment, but then picture it with the, this invisible overlay of disturbance, maybe the equivalent of, say, your apartment or, or your house is right next to really busy railroad tracks. And every time the railroad comes by, all your dishes, your walls rattle and your dishes fall off the shelf. Now, now try to picture that happening 30 times an hour, which is, is comparable to some of the use we see on our trails, or, or try to get at, uh, imagine it in a cumulative sense where we've got multiple trails and these overlapping and amplifying effects from them. You know, maybe you've got a railroad track on each side of your house you could imagine how your nerves would get pretty rattled. So when you look at um, disturbance in a cumulative nature, we think about this in a couple different ways. And one of those is chronic stress. So when there's repeated disturbance over time, this can reduce the health of wildlife across the landscape. And this reduces their uh, reproduction and population growth. It can impair the, their immune systems and increase their vulnerability to parasites and disease. So when this is happening over a large area, we see things like habitat compression or them avoiding areas um, of the landscape where they may be forced to use smaller, less connect, connected or marginal habitats and result in dead zones. It may be great habitat. It may provide all the structural and vegetative components necessary for them to survive, but because there's this increased disturbance potential there, they're actually avoiding it. At the landscape level, when we have heavy disturbance like this, it can create barriers, which um, results in habitat fragmentation and the loss of connectivity. What are a few things that we can do as individuals to help reduce our impact as cyclists? The first step in reducing our impact is is a step in self-perception. You kind of got to look at your own actions and, and know that, that you're having impacts as much as other people are. Um, there actually are some studies that have shown that only about half of recreation users think that recreation has impacts to the environment at all. And of those half that, that do accept that recreation has impacts, the majority of them blame other user groups for having more impact. Another one is just to bring a conservation mindset to recreation. And we like to think that most people who enjoy outdoor recreation do so because they value and enjoy nature. And a big piece of reducing recreation impacts is bringing those personal conservation values forward in your actions. Have a mindset when you enter the forest knowing that it's a wild landscape. It, it is in a city park designed for recreation and recreation alone that um, public lands need to serve a variety of uses beyond recreation. Here, we're talking about wildlife habitat today, but there are other uses as well, like timber production or providing drinking water or sequestering carbon even. 
So public lands have a lot of pressure on them more than ever right now. And just understanding that we need to respect the need for balance between all those important uses. One thing I want to mention is just the leave no trace principle or even taking that a a step further and trying to leave a place better than you found it. Trying to think of how leave no trace principles might apply to some of the disturbance ecology stuff we're talking about. I mean, you might not be able to to recreate with no disturbance at all, but you certainly can limit it. And typically less disturbance is associated with an increase in predictability. How predictable your actions are to wildlife makes a difference because they're, it's easier for them to respond to it if, if they know what to expect. Ways you can increase your predictability are things like staying on system trails and roads and use them accordingly. I'd also say things like uh, obeying seasonal closures or trail closures are important. Avoiding recreating at at dawn or dusk or or in the dark. These are times when wildlife are most active or most likely to be out and about. I'd add to that list, do do not build your own trails and don't ride user-created trails. It's important to talk to your friends and your family about responsible recreation and teach those principles to your kids I think this is a place where we could really set a good example and kind of show people that these are the values that we have here in Bend in how we recreate. Yeah, some really good tips there. And then any recommended resources that uh, you would suggest people look into? We do have all of our travel management maps and information on seasonal closures uh, that can be found on the Deschutes National Forest website. There's a maps tab there that's got useful information. There's also a maps tab on the ODFW website that has uh, good information on seasonal closures. Um, Specific to mountain biking uh, and mountain biking trails, I I think the Ben Trails website is typically a good source of information at bentrails.org. And then also the Central Oregon Adventure Maps. Those are available at a lot of shops in town, including at, at the Deschutes National Forest. Um, they, they typically vet those routes with our trails staff for accuracy. If listeners are interested, how can they get involved and or reach you? I would recommend that they stay in touch with the Deschutes National Forest through our website or on our social media page on um, Facebook or Twitter. They can stay up to date with up and coming forest projects. Um, They can sign up for notifications or find information on how to submit comments. And then we have volunteers, and they're coordinated through our sister nonprofit organization, Discover Your Forest. If you want to build trails, put your energy towards something positive and productive. There are lots of local groups that um, you can partner with for all things trails. And a good resource for finding out what those groups are is the Deschutes Trails Coalition. And then there's um, the Allingham Trails Skills College, which is a free training that uh, they can get involved with, put on by the Forest Service and some of our trail partners. So you can Google that to find out more details. Wow, all those resources, that's great and fantastic information. Brock, Lori, thank you so much for sharing all this with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank, thank you, Chris. Dirty Free Hub is a nonprofit organization fueled by your generous contributions. Find us at dirtyfreehub.org.